This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm David Lipson. Coming up, a five-year report has painted a bleak picture about environmental decline in Australia. Is it too late to reverse it? One thing that gives me a lot of hope and and optimism is that I think Australians are starting to realise that our very own health, wellbeing, livability, the productivity of our agriculture, they all depend on nature. Also, there are calls to shut our international borders again, not due to COVID, but the deadly livestock disease foot and mouth. We'll get a clear-eyed assessment of how real the risk is. First, though, the federal government's announced a wide-ranging review into the Reserve Bank this week after scathing criticism about its performance. A major investigation has been launched into how the Reserve Bank operates. The inquiry follows decisions made by the Reserve during the pandemic, and it comes as millions of Australians stare down the barrel of a fourth consecutive interest rate hike. Treasurer Jim Chalmers says the investigation won't be a witch hunt, but it will look at the culture, the decision-makers and their role in trying to control inflation. So what is wrong with the Reserve Bank? Stephen Hamilton is Assistant Professor of Economics at the George Washington University. Effectively, what the Reserve Bank is designed to do is to keep the economy on an even keel in a kind of Goldilocks zone. If the economy is getting too hot, if there's too much activity, if there's too much money chasing too few goods, the Reserve Bank is there to pull some of that heat out Conversely, if the economy is sluggish, right, if things are a bit flat, not enough activity going on, not enough jobs, the Reserve Bank is there to kind of pump things up, right? So think about it like a helium balloon. You can put more helium into the balloon, the balloon starts going up. If there's not enough helium in the balloon, the balloon will fall to the ground. The RBA is trying to keep it hovering there in the kind of Goldilocks zone. So I guess because it is such a critical institution, it's often in the firing line for either perhaps not putting enough air into the balloon or or pulling too much out. And recently, even more so, because by its own admission, it got some very important things wrong. Just explain to us what they were. Yeah, so the RBA is an independent institution. That's really important. But in its independence, it, it needs to be accountable for its actions, right? So People have been critical of the Reserve Bank for for some time. It's not a new thing. Uh, Leading into the pandemic, the RBA really undershot its inflation target. So, you know, that balloon was hovering too low. Uh, So that meant, you know, new research shows, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people were out of work because the RBA wasn't doing a good enough job to keep the economy rolling before the pandemic. Then, of course, we had the pandemic, this massive sort of cataclysmic event that really nobody knows how to deal with, right? It was it was, it was was nothing we'd seen in, in 100 years. And the RBA, you know, had to kind of scramble to deal with that. Obviously, we, we expected the pandemic in Australia, at least, to be much worse than it was. So the RBA pumped massive amounts of money into the economy to try and support things. And now what we see is sort of, in the end, probably pumped too much money in, and that's kind of having this inflationary impact, right? Again, we pumped lots of air into the balloon. It's at the point of perhaps nearly exploding, right? So the the, the governor himself has said he's sort of embarrassed that, that they didn't see this coming. And so on both sides, going into the pandemic too soft, coming out of the pandemic too hard, there's, there's just in general a sort of dissatisfaction about the recent performance of the bank. 
Perhaps the strongest criticism was directed at the RBA Governor Philip Lowe for his repeated suggestion that rates were unlikely to rise before 2024. It led many home buyers to assume they'd have more time to get ahead on their mortgages before rates started rising. I was just so swept up in being approved that I was like, this is a dream come true. Just roll with it and keep going. And think about the consequences later, which now I've sort of got, now I'm in here, I have to look at and look at how things are going to change and what the future holds. Not that long ago, frankly, you know, certainly six months ago or, you know, even that that recently, uh, the Reserve Bank was expecting to keep interest rates at zero until at least 2024. Now, that they gave people that clear guidance that they would keep interest rates as low as possible for as long as possible. You know, they said this is our expectation, so maybe there was a bit of uncertainty, um, but but they backed up that 2024 forecast. They, they kept interest rates on bonds due in 2024 down at zero to say, we promise this is what it'll be. Now, very quickly, that became non-credible, right? It was very quickly we realized, oh, inflation's a lot higher than we thought. Activity's coming back a lot faster than we thought. The labor market is really, really strong. All of these things started showing us that the economy is far stronger than we expected. And that that meant the RBA had to backpedal pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and when we talk about these decisions and the people making them in the Reserve Bank, we hear obviously a lot about the governor, Philip Lowe. He's the one who, who apologised, said he was embarrassed. But there's a whole team involved in these decisions, right? Who, who are they? And in the minds of economists, are they the right mix? So the Reserve Bank's decisions, its, it's interest rate decisions, are not made by the governor of the Reserve Bank. They're made by the board of the Reserve Bank. Now, the board includes the governor, it includes the deputy governor, and it includes the treasury secretary. But the the other members of the board are external parties. So they're people outside the bank. And in Australia, we have a really strange system, certainly compared to other countries that are similar in the world, where those people are not really experts of, of economics or monetary policy or monetary economics. They're usually business people. Right, and they have historically been. Sometimes there's an economist on there, but not always. And that's really an international outlier. You know, if you look at the Bank of England, all four of their external members are economic experts, right? They're there to interpret the recommendations of the bank as experts to determine whether the decisions made and the analysis made is, is sound. So, you know, the, the way I sort of think about it is, you know, if we think about other institutions in Australia, so if I look at Atagi, for example, that we've heard so much from over the last two years of the pandemic, you know, the average Australian wouldn't say, oh, we need a a union leader on a targi, or we need some business people on a targi advising about vaccines, right? We would think, no, no, we need experts in medicine to make decisions about medical advice. Well, with the Reserve Bank, in my view, that's the same case. We don't need union leaders. We don't need business people. What we need is experts in economic analysis. And, and to my mind, over the last five years or so, that's been something really missing from the board and something I'd like to see corrected. It seems to be a pretty tough time to be a central bank wherever <laughs> you look around the world. So are these issues that you describe exclusive to Australia's central bank, the RBA? 
That's a great question, uh, David. So, uh, no, uh, lots of central banks have have faced lots of different challenges, right? And some have done better than others. Uh, and I think, for for example, with inflation, I think lots of central banks across the world were caught by surprise. But we do have our own unique problems, right? So I think the handling of the inflation forecast out to 2024, the clumsiness of that was definitely uniquely Australian the inactive monetary policy leading into the pandemic and the the lost jobs that resulted, I think that was uniquely Australian. And certainly a lot of the issues with our central bank are because of, you know, I don't want to use a Scott Morrison term, but, you know, the Australian way that we apply to our central bank. And, And what I think is, you know, why are we so special? Why do we think it's okay to do things differently? Right? Shouldn't we look to the world? Shouldn't we look to the, the, the best kind of economic minds, to the, the most advanced kind of economic thinkers across the world and, and take seriously how they do these things? Uh, so I look at Australia as an outlier and, and I think that's a problem. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has launched a review of the Reserve Bank looking into many of these issues that we've just discussed. Do you think he's got the right team of experts to actually do that? So I was quite impressed in general with with the with the review announcement. It's certainly so so critical that we have one. So even just having a review, frankly, is a, is a big win. And the fact that it was bipartisan is what we should expect. You know, the terms of reference for the review are excellent. They're they're broad ranging. You know, he he really left no stone unturned to make sure everything was in. Um, I can't imagine the governor would have been particularly happy with that. Uh, and, and the panel of experts he chose was diverse. You know, we get we have a government representative, we have some with overseas experience, and then we have a an Australian academic. I think the one area that we're missing is, you know, we don't have on that panel you know, a world-leading expert in monetary economics, right? Like a true expert. If I could think about the top 20 people in the world who really understand the economics behind what the Reserve Bank does, that person is kind of missing. And in fact, we have some of those people in Australia. So I thought it was a bit curious that they were left off. Nevertheless, I think the panel, based on the terms of reference and the makeup, will do a good job in assessing how the the Reserve Bank is set up. So this review is meant to come down with its recommendations next year. How momentous will 2023 be for the Reserve Bank and its board? Yeah, it's the most important year for monetary policy in decades, right? We really can't overstate just how important it is. So we have the review kicking off now. Next year, we'll have the appointment of two new board members, the Reserve Bank governor, is up for reappointment or, or not uh, in September. So, you know, through 2023, we have huge kind of crossroads that the institution will face. And of course, the review delivers its findings in March. So between March, sort of that middle six months of the year, the government's going to have to consider really carefully what the recommendations are and how it wants to sort of frame the Reserve Bank going forward. And we, we need to keep keep in mind, you know, this is a critical economic institution. What the government does with it is going to affect every single one of us in terms of our livelihoods, our mortgage repayments, whether we can get a job or not, right? So the fact that the government has done this is great, but what's much more important is getting it right. Stephen Hamilton is Assistant Professor of Economics at the George Washington University. As millions of people in the Northern Hemisphere were scorched by record-breaking temperatures this week, many Australians were left in shock about the state of our environment. A 2,000-page, five-yearly report was released by the federal government after being held back by the coalition last year. It found the combination of land clearing, invasive species, 
Pollution and mining are having a catastrophic effect on our natural environment, with climate change only accelerating the destruction. The scale of the loss was the most striking thing. You know, 7.7 million hectares of threatened species habitat cleared. That's the size of Tasmania. More than 200 new plant and animal species added to the threatened species list. 19 ecosystems showing clear signs of collapse. And, you know, we're a world leader in extinction. It was a wake-up call to Australia. Professor Sarah Bacchessi is a conservation scientist at RMIT University. We've always had habitat clearance, sadly, in this country um, since European colonisation. And we've known that invasive species are such a problem. They're rampaging across our landscapes. But I think the addition of climate change is really starting to show now how those dual crises, if you like, of biodiversity loss and climate change kind of work in tandem. And, you know, examples like the scale of the fires of Black Summer are an indication of the, you know, frightening outcomes we're likely to see going forward. This week, Tanya Plibersek, the Environment Minister, blamed the former government, the Morrison government, for a decade of inaction. The previous government was no friend to the environment. Too many urgent warnings were either ignored or kept secret. The former government made nice promises but rarely bothered to deliver them. How much worse did things get under the coalition? The failings of the coalition to protect the environment were have been clearly articulated in multiple uh, inquiries. Now, we've seen a 40% cut to environment budgets since 2013. And you know, when it comes to climate change, if everyone in the world had done what we were intending to do under the coalition, it would be a three to four degree warming of the planet this century, which would be catastrophic. But, you know, consecutive governments have really failed on the environment. We've seen declines in, in environmental spending, declines in investment in recovery planning and the like under Labor and coalition governments. Certainly in my home state in Victoria, it's still supporting activities like native forest harvesting. Um, you know, the Victorian government is actually responsible for a lot of land clearing in Australia, including through things like strategic fire breaks that uh, a lot of communities don't want. So neither side of politics is uh, free of guilt in, in terms of management of the environment. So the federal government did a pretty good job this week, I think, of, of outlining the problem, the scale of, of this issue. They've only gone a little way in you know, committing to how they're going to fix it. But one of the important ways, they're promising regulatory changes to protect the environment. What can we expect there? Well, yes, so in response to that State of the Environment report, Labor have promised to review and possibly replace our environment laws by next year. And to to understand what's driving that, it's, it's interesting to look at a 2021 review of that Act that was undertaken by Graham Samuel. And he found that the Act had really good foundations and good principles, but it did not have um, sufficient teeth to protect critical habitats. So, you know, 7.7 million hectares being cleared is an obvious kind of um, symptom of that. There's been inadequate resourcing of enforcement, you know, in in some instances zero enforcement. So a lot of that 7.7 million hectares wasn't even referred to the Act. So essentially it was a legal clearing. So in your opinion, what is the best way to sort of put a cop on the beat in this space? Should it be entirely independent of government or would that create problems of its own? Look, I think um, the devil's going to be in the detail. I think having an independent watchdog is super important here. Uh, Labor's committing to an environmental protection agency at the federal level. But, you know, how much power will they have to enforce? How, how independent will they be? 
what will be the recourse if you actually if they identify problems and those kinds of things really will be what makes it a kind of functional and effective agency or not but but is it too late for a lot of species that have already been devastated so long as a species isn't actually extinct it's never too late but what we do need to do is properly fund recovery so it's not just the regulatory reform that i spoke about it's also that we need to spend money to actually bring a lot of those species and ecosystems back from the brink of extinction. And we know that we're spending nothing like what's required, probably less than a tenth of what's required. We've uh, estimated the amount that we probably need to spend at about $2 billion per year, which sounds like a lot of money. But putting it in perspective, we spend about $30 billion per year on our cats and our dogs. You know, in that context, it's not not a heck of a lot. In Welcome News, the government committed to protecting 30% of Australia by 2030. But again, the devil will be in the detail. Mm. You know, it's actually possible to achieve that uh, protection in a sort of fairly soft and unhelpful way. You know, we need to strategically target the species and ecosystems that are currently poorly protected and also invest in their management. You know, a feral cat can still eat a bandicoot in a national park just because we've got a sign up saying national park. We know that mining and climate change are a big part of this problem. Is all of this kind of futile if the government doesn't do enough to cut emissions and and sort of waves through new coal and gas projects? You know, they definitely go hand in hand and and there's a certain amount of discordance, if, if you like, between on the one hand trying to protect habitat and on the other hand doing things that are sort of actively undermining that protection. But, you know, ultimately, the best and most certain thing that we can do for habitat and species in this country is things that we have completely under our control that don't depend on anyone else on the planet doing anything. And that is stopping land clearing and investing in proper management of our ecosystems. And if we do those things, then our ecosystems will be more resilient to whatever comes in terms of climate change. There are competing issues, aren't there? You know, housing affordability. Um, There's a lot of pressure for governments to be releasing more land for development, Um, not to mention mining, not to mention other projects that are important to the Australian economy. So balancing that is going to be really tough, isn't it? It is, but, you know, one thing that gives me a lot of hope and and optimism is that I think Australians are starting to realise that our very own health, well-being, livability, the resilience of our landscapes, you know, the productivity of our agriculture, they all depend on nature. And, you know, I think that realisation, I think industry is starting to realise that we've got the biodiversity risk disclosures happening in the financial sector, and I think that link is probably one of our best hopes of actually demanding change at a landscape scale to make sure that we regenerate nature and and make it as healthy as it possibly can be. Professor Sarah Bekesi, a conservation scientist at RMIT University. Back in 2014, the CSIRO produced a report looking at a few of the worst-case scenarios for our biosecurity. There were things like a disease which could wipe out honeybee populations or an outbreak of foot and mouth. Fast forward to this year and it really feels like we are working our way through the full list. In cattle yards across the country, farmers were fearful and now it's happened. We have detected foot and mouth disease in a small number of pork products for sale in the Melbourne CBD. 
In response to the outbreak in Indonesia, the federal government is rolling out disinfectant foot mats at airports and strengthening powers for border officials to seize suspect items. There's also been some calls to ban all travel from Indonesia, but the government says whipping up hysteria isn't helping anyone. To excite people and inflame the tensions that are out there doesn't actually do our farms or farmers any good whatsoever. Uh, And it actually, all it is doing is attracting attention internationally uh, that our farm industry doesn't need. Aaron Dodd is an expert in biosecurity at the University of Melbourne. He says that while we weren't able to keep a disease like COVID out of Australia, the odds are much better when it comes to foot and mouth. The controls that we saw during COVID are not actually all that different to the controls that we would see for foot and mouth disease. The key thing, of course, that is one of the things that is most heartbreaking in in an animal disease outbreak is that where in COVID we might have had a case that, you know, isolated home and along with their close contacts, in the management of an emergency animal disease like foot and mouth disease rather than those contacts isolating, in order to get ahead of the disease as quickly as possible, those animals will be slaughtered. So all animals that are affected or close contacts of those affected. And that's a really key difference between the management of COVID and the management of emergency animal disease. And one of the reasons why people really fear and justifiably fear having foot and mouth disease in Australia, because the loss of those animals is the loss of their livelihood. So there's been a heavy focus in the past week or so on people washing their shoes when they come back from Indonesia. Is that the right approach to keep this out? The standard advice for anybody that travels to a natural or outside area, whether that be a farm, a national park, a wilderness area, whilst they're overseas, is to wash their shoes and their clothes when they return to Australia. It's a really simple thing that any Australian can do. But The key thing to note is that they're not the only controls that we have in place to prevent pests and diseases coming into Australia. Australia operates one of the world's most comprehensive biosecurity systems along with New Zealand. And for diseases like foot and mouth disease, passengers and travellers only represent one possible pathway for the disease to enter into the country. So the controls that we deploy on those other pathways, such as passengers that might be carrying meat products in their backpacks, as well as mail um, and the live import of um, animals or or even other cargoes, such as um, the example that we saw earlier this week, where meat products were imported into Australia and then made available for sale, though possibly not uh, through the appropriated regulated channels. I think that news that there was meat being sold in Melbourne, other meat caught at the border at the airports that had fragments of virus in it uh, was was quite disturbing to a lot of people. Can you put that in perspective for us, though? How much of a risk is meat, for example, compared to, say, mud on a boot? So I think the really important thing to note is that the detection of virus or virus fragments in products at the border is the entire reason why we have the border biosecurity system that we do. We know that there will be products that will be potentially coming in and the whole reason why we have a border biosecurity system is to pick those up and prevent them from entering the country. So it's not at all surprising that that fragments, so deactivated virus, was found uh, in in meat products at the border this week. That's something that happens uh, routinely and um, is not at all surprising. But also we do know that zero biosecurity risk is completely 
unattainable. You know, the collective of, of the people involved in the delivery of biosecurity across the country put measures in place to ensure that the risk is as low as it possibly can be, but it's never going to be zero. Even if a live virus did make it through the border, what does it take for it to then get into our livestock? So the, the key thing is that it's actually that the virus itself has to come into contact with an animal. So this is where it's a little bit different to the COVID situation where, you know, an infected person with COVID could potentially walk through the airport and then, you know, they come into contact with another person and so the virus spreads. In the case of foot and mouth disease, essentially, one of those viral capsoids has to come into contact with a susceptible host. So in the case of foot and mouth disease, that's two hooved animals, cloven hooved animals, um, so sheep, goats, pigs, and so on. And that means that the, the actions that we take at the border are only one part of the broader set of biosecurity controls that we have in place. For example, it's illegal in Australia to feed meat products to pigs for exactly this reason, because we suspect that the 2001 outbreak in the UK was caused by infected meat being fed to pigs. Pigs are an amplifying host. They result in, uh, they produce really large amounts of aerosolized virus. Those virus particles on the wind blew to the sheep next door. Those sheep went to market. And as anybody involved in the livestock trade knows, particularly in a period of restocking, once those sheep went to market, they went from one end of the UK to the other because of the long time to detection. So to, to put it into contrast, that 2001 outbreak in the UK resulted in some 2,000 farms infected, more than 6 million animals slaughtered. But what you don't hear about so frequently is the 2007 outbreak in the UK many years later where they learnt the lessons and the disease was reported far more quickly. That resulted in eight cases. So we've clearly been preparing for this kind of situation for, for some time. And as you say, a lot of checks and balances in place, not just at the border, so what then do you make of calls this week to close the border to everyone coming from Indonesia? The thing that I was discussing with some colleagues earlier in the week is that the most important thing to remember is that foot and mouth disease is endemic in large parts of the world, particularly the developing world. Countries that we receive large numbers of travellers and passengers from routinely and have done for many years. We've never needed to close the border to flights um, from those locations. So Australia is helping to pay to vaccinate animals in Indonesia. Why don't we just vaccinate our herds here in Australia? So there's two parts to the answer to that question. The, the first is that spending money offshore to manage risks there by reducing the number of infected disease animals in Indonesia is one of the most cost-effective controls that we can deploy. In terms of vaccinating here, the effect of vaccination would have is that it would mean that we would be effectively treated as having the disease. The way that the vaccine works is that it obviously reduces clinical signs of disease. And what that means is that it's very difficult to detect whether or not you do have infected animals because the, the vaccine doesn't prevent infection, it just prevents the clinical signs of disease. Aaron Dodd is a biosecurity expert at the University of Melbourne. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Eleanor Whitehead, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. Have a good weekend. 